Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And this is Big. Strong. Yes. Welcome to Big Strong Yes, the show where we share our journey of reading three books that are inspiring us to embrace courage, creativity, and the call to adventure. Rising Strong by Dr. Brene Brown, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. Follow hashtag Big Strong Yes on Twitter for announcements and discussion. On Twitter, you can follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones. You can also email us at bsy at chipperish.com. BSY stands for Big Strong Yes. So BSY at chipperish.com. Yes, this is fairly clear. <laughs> so hopefully you'll <laughs> be able to find it. If you are a Patreon supporter, we have a Big Strong Yes chat room on Discord where both of us hang out and answer questions and give support. It's intimate, private to the Patreon supporters who go into that room and you can go over 140 characters, which is really nice. The discussion there has been... So fantastic. It's this live chat and there's almost always somebody in there who can be supportive and kind of talk you through your stuff. It is such a wonderful, wonderful community. So if you can, we would love to have you join us at patreon.com slash chipperish. The reading we'll be discussing today is Rising Strong, Chapter 4, The Reckoning. Next week's reading is Rising Strong, Chapter 5, The Rumble. So, Lonnie, we had homework. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. <laughs> How did it go last week? Well, the homework I assigned myself was uh, drink a lot, and I actually <laughs> didn't do that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I drank a little, uh, but not enough, I think, to really qualify for, like, the, the homework, you know, to live in the spirit of homework. I didn't drink mm -hmm. enough for that. So I did your homework that you assigned me, um, engaging in the SFD. Um, it wasn't in a journal. It was in a text chain, you know, with you. Um, Kelly walked me through it, and I hated every minute of it. It was really <laughs> ugly and honest and didn't feel like me to express like such incredibly ugly scene, ugly things because I don't usually express that stuff. I try to, you know, moderate myself if I don't think that the feelings are justified or that they're, or just that they're not pretty, just that, that people would, would see them as being ugly. Um, I usually don't like to do that. And immediately afterward, after this whole process uh, with Kelly, I did not feel better. I thought, okay, I'm supposed to feel better now. And I don't mm -hmm. feel better. What I am is angry and crying. And that isn't helping <laughs> me because that's pretty much my <laughs> default setting anyway. Um, but after a while, it it kind of released. It didn't, I don't know if I felt better, but I felt like the pressure had gone off, you know, mm -hmm. that I wasn't, I wasn't feeling everything as intensely as I had been. And, uh, and it was really dark. Like I, I felt really dark while I was expressing that. And it's not my typical kind of bubbly light, you know, bright sidey personality. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know if I would have been able to, to get to that place if you hadn't guided me through it. You were like my flashlight through that dark space. So thank you so much for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for being my flashlight when I was in the dark and sent you <laughs> an extremely ugly, <laughs> shitty oh, first draft text ugly. message. <laughs> yours wasn't ugly. Yours was vulnerable. That's Yours different. wasn't ugly either. Uh, but I, I'm starting to think of the shitty first draft as like, if you're sick, and you have a raging fever yeah. and the fever has gotten you to the point of hallucinations or incomprehensible mm -hmm. suffering that the shitty first draft breaks the fever. Yes. No, that's exactly what it is. It's like you don't get better immediately. It doesn't feel it's not like this immediate relief where you're like, oh, my goodness, this is a miracle. But mm -hmm. it's just that there's this it's a break. 
You know, right. you're still you're still feverish, right. but it's breaking and it's starting on the downswing. And I think that that is really valuable. It doesn't feel in the moment, I think, yeah. like quite the miraculous relief that you would want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does work. And I think the more of them you do, the better it gets. I actually did another SFD um, kind of, you know, in public on, <laughs> on Twitter. I might have I might have done it on Twitter. I, I started uh-huh. out just making kind of a joke, you know, yeah. um, and it, it escalated from there. Um, I got a little angry, you know, and then I tweeted mm-hmm. some other things that were not jokes, but were truthful to my experience. Um, and on the one hand, like I have a right to talk about my experience If people, you know, Anne Lamott said, if people want you to talk warmly about them, they should behave better. You that's know, right. <laughs> um, and I think that that's completely fair. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's not really about, you know, them, the people I was talking about, but it's, it's more about the people who follow me. Like it feels ugly and it feels gross. And like, I don't want, I don't mind talking about it here because everybody here who's listening to Big Strong Yes is kind of signed up, you know, to, like, right. <laughs> to listen to this stuff that isn't pretty, you know. But on Twitter, you know, the people who follow me mostly just want to hear about Buffy, you know, and like stories and stuff like that. So I feel like, you know, no one wants to see that grossness. And I try to keep a lid on it. But every now and again, like I have to, I just have to, you know, and, and the mm-hmm. tweets that I had were pointed, but they were so funny. Like, it was really kind of a funny thing. And I went for the joke. And I think it was because I, I went to the SFD through the joke mm-hmm. that I felt like Twitter was an okay place to have that. And then of course, I knew what would happen after that that would engage, you know, my anger and everything and just didn't really think it all the way through um, past. I have a right to talk about whatever I want, which I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that that allowed me to do was the other part of your homework, which was tell a generous story to myself. You know, right. ordinarily, I would look at this situation and I would be like, OK, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. I, you know, and, and feel really bad about it and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and I was able to tell a generous story like I have a right to talk about the things that happen to me. If they have the right to do these things, then I have the right to talk about them. And I'm sorry, but doing them is worse than talking about them pretty much mm-hmm. right, you know, hands down. Um, <laughs> and I have a right to tell my story and I have a right to speak honestly and openly about things that happen to me. And I didn't do anything wrong. You know, right. I really didn't. Um, I, I do feel like, you know, the thing that I feel bad about is that the people who choose to follow me, you know, aren't looking for that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I feel a little bad about that because I kind of brought something into their space that for some of them made them really angry because they were angry on my behalf. And, you know, and that's not a fun feeling. It's not fun to feel, you know, angry about the way that somebody else is being treated, especially somebody that you like and respect and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, on that sense, like, I kind of wish I hadn't done it. But at the same time, I had a right to and it was OK and I didn't do anything wrong. It was yeah. just, you know, most of the shitty first drafts, I think, are best held in private. So I'm, I'm stealing a line from Jennifer Cruzy, who is you know, one of the people I adore most in the world that she had in her book. Um, uh, it was Faking It, mm-hmm. um, where she said, if I can't be a good example, at least I can be a horrible warning. You know? so, like, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so let me just tell you, have your SFDs privately, have them with one person who you trust a lot or not with anybody or just completely mm-hmm. privately. Uh, don't put them on Twitter. I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> generally it's, it's, it's more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. But I love the fact that you're able to look back at that and tell a generous story about yourself. Because, yeah, no, it was, it was a good exercise for me, I think. Yeah. And when you're going through hell, sometimes your emotions are going to win. 
You yeah. know, it, it is impossible to walk through hell unscathed. It's impossible to yeah. do that with perfect poise and grace and perfect behavior. And, uh, you know, that's okay. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but I do think, I mean, only for self-care and yeah. self-protection that keeping the shitty first drafts to yourself is a good idea. Um, but in fairness, it was funny as hell. It was funny. <laughs> so, like, it was really I feel funny. like I'm being an incredible bad influence to say, no. yes, keep them to yourself. But, oh, God, that was funny. Because <laughs> I told you, I told you first what I was going to do before I did it. And then before you could text me back, I was like, nah, I'm doing it. You know, so, you were trying. You tried to I tried. Stop me, but, but once the roller coaster was already in motion, you just went with it. And I thought that was very supportive. <laughs> but sometimes that's going to happen. Sometimes yeah. mm-hmm. we get overwhelmed and sometimes we fight back and we might mm-hmm. not fight back, you know, when we're thinking clearly, it just happens. Right. And so mm-hmm. being able to to look back and say, okay, that might not have been the way I wanted to react, but right. this is a true story. This is mm-hmm. my truth. I own it. And I can talk about it if I want to. Right. Um, it's still a great thing for you, right? It's still right. to be able to do that with some positivity and generosity mm-hmm. towards yourself is still good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. so I think that that's pretty good. So how did your homework go? So my homework was to journal and to practice reckoning, and mm-hmm. I did it and hated it very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm learning that it's it's very easy to write about what I think, but not to write about how I feel. Mm-hmm. And so I kept prompting myself in the journal, how am I feeling right now? And my mm-hmm. most common answer was tired. You know, yeah. probably annoyed at this journal might have been another one. Um, <laughs> but I noticed that my responses um, were typically describing physical feelings and not emotional mm-hmm. ones. And so venturing into emotions led to things like frustrated, irritated, annoyed, and then back to tired. And I felt like a walking ad for some new PMS pill. Um, and that's like definitely not how I want to be. <laughs> um But then I had kind of an aha, you know, moment, which was Mm -hmm. one of these realizations that makes you really like it really hits you over the head pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the reason it's difficult for me to name emotions is not because I'm not feeling any, but because I'm feeling a lot. Um, And I think taking the lid off that box is terrifying, you know, terrifying to the point of paralysis. Oh, sure. So. You know, we had talked about writing from the wound versus writing from the scar. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was good to go because I'm writing from the scar. Um, right. But my scars are so old and they've grown, you know, kind of faint with time. And so I've learned not to really see them anymore. Right. And so I've been ignoring feelings and focusing on work for so long that emotions and creativity have just gotten squashed. So. I think I'm going to need a big ass crowbar to like open that emotional crate. And I'm kind of scared of what might be in there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that when you've got everything kind of compartmentalized, you know, the way that you have that when you open that, because you shoved it in a crate before it was before it was a scar, when it was still a wound, a lot of that stuff is going to feel fresh because it, it keeps fresh in the crate. 
You know, right. like the only way to really get to the scar, you can have a wound that lasts for years and years. It's not a function of time. It's a function of attention. Right. So, you know, some of that stuff, I think when you open it up is going to feel really fresh. And I think that what happens when that much time has gone by, this is sort of what happened with me and my mother, right? You know, there was all this um, damage that she did to me all while I was growing up. And it wasn't until I was in my mid to late thirties that I recognized what was happening and that I understood that what she was doing was wrong, you know, mm -hmm. and all of the stuff that I had, you know, put in the crate from the time I was little, you know, I opened up at that point and I was like, oh my God, you know, and it was overwhelming and it was all fresh. And then I was like, why am I, you know, this was so long ago. Why am I still feeling that? And it was because I hadn't processed it because I had stuffed it in the crate and it just gets preserved. Yeah. So that's obviously going to be terrifying. And yeah. I don't blame you for feeling that way. Yeah. I mean, if there's a nuclear explosion, you know, and you open the crate, it's going to be like a box of Twinkies that have survived <laughs> and these exactly. old emotions, like they just don't die. So, they have but preservatives, <laughs> yes. No, and, um, and you know, for me, like all roads lead back to Whedon, and I've been oh, sure. I've been rewatching Angel, um, mm -hmm. also in anticipation of a new Still Dead podcast. So, folks, let's get Lonnie yes. up on Patreon because I need <laughs> that work. Um, but there's, yeah. you know, there's a part where Angel is locked up in a crate, yeah. I guess, and like mm -hmm. thrown into the bottom of the ocean. Well, he's a vampire; he can live like that. Um, mm -hmm. very unhappily and very badly, but he's still alive when they pull him out. And mm -hmm. there's that moment when they're about to pull the top off and they're like, there's a vampire in here who's probably insane, who hasn't eaten for a really long time. And we're about to open this box, y'all. And that's kind of how I feel. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you at all. And that's not a bad metaphor for that. I mean, it really does feel like that. And the, the longer it's in the crate, the more power it feels like it has. But I don't think it gains power. I think it just retains freshness. Yeah, <laughs> it's beautifully preserved. Um, yeah, so, so it feels like it's going to be more more powerful and more pissed off and more deadly. But I can tell you that like from my experience with the stuff that happened with my mother, um, it was really difficult for me to deal with because I felt like so much time had gone by that I shouldn't be feeling this way anymore. You know, so it mm -hmm. took me a long time to kind of process it because it was so intense and so fresh that I didn't, I didn't, you know, know exactly how to deal with it. But it does like as soon as you open that crate, that process begins, you know, right. and it's it's no worse than it was at the moment you shoved it in the crate. It just feels worse. And also it's got buddies. You yeah. know, because you shoved <laughs> you shoved other things in the crate too. So it's like yeah. it gets a, it can get a little overwhelming. But but yeah. you can do little bit by little bit and just, you know, open mm -hmm. it up just a peek and then close it again and then open it up just a peek and then close it again. Whatever you've got to do to make sure that you're not overwhelming yourself with all yeah. of the stuff. But like taking one piece out at a time mm -hmm. and kind of dealing with that as you go. And not judging yourself for, for, you know, these old things being a problem, you know? Yeah. And and I think overwhelmed is, is the key mm -hmm. word because I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who, who actually does coaching for, for mm -hmm. writers. And I was like, you know, I don't understand. I want to write, I have all these ideas and I never seem to be able to pick one and focus on it. And he's like, maybe the problem is that you're overwhelmed. And he uh -huh. just named that one emotion. And I was like, mm -hmm wait a minute, maybe I am always overwhelmed. And that's going to be the one I start with. So I have decided we're mm -hmm. going to open the crate real fast. We're going to let yes. one emotion out. And we're just going to deal with overwhelm. Like, oh, so yeah, 
being overwhelmed in terms of stress and responsibilities, being overwhelmed with ideas that I don't know how to, you know, like how to engage creatively. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm just going to take it one by one. And so my first emotion is going to be overwhelm. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to start there. I'm going to baby step this thing. (laughs) You've got to baby step this thing. Otherwise, it's just, it is too much, you know, and you'll end up shutting down. So you need to do it little bit by little bit. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, you know, part of the reason why this podcast is so good. You know, we we, we wouldn't do Brene Brown's class, you know, but we're doing the podcast because (laughs) we've made a promise to other people and we've got to, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's really good, you know, because we're making ourselves do it. But I think that's one of the things that we can do you know, a little bit by little bit. And therapy mm-hmm. is also really good for that too. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm going to a, a weekly therapist now and she, I was telling her about this podcast and she said that she goes, you know, it's really good that you are talking about this stuff in spaces other than here. One hour a week is not enough, you right. know, that you have to have places that you can talk about the stuff. You have to have people that you feel safe enough with that you can say, Hey, I'm going through a thing. I'm going to need to lean on you a little bit more now, maybe than I usually do. And most friends, friends who are good friends are going to be like, I'm here. I got it. You know, I'll carry you. And, Mm -hmm. and that can be really, really helpful. So that's great. Another thing that you did, which I loved is that you did kind of a little Pinterest thing. I did. And so I'm new to Pinterest. I still Mm -hmm. have not quite figured it out. But I took the collage into Pinterest. And what I love about it is it takes the pressure of making the page pretty completely off. Yes. Like Mm -hmm. you're not designing the page. You're just collecting the images. Mm -hmm. And having a collection of boards now by theme is Mm -hmm. amazing because I'm not getting overwhelmed. Right. I don't have a thousand pictures in there. And you don't Um, have to share anything on Pinterest. You can make it private. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I started a board. Um just for what I want my environment to look like. So Mm -hmm. pretty pictures of rooms um, to try to figure out, you know, what is my style and what do I like? And, and then you pointed me to home goods and Mm -hmm. um, home goods has a quiz on their website that is like your decorating style. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so they show you, it's a, it's like a group of images and you pick Mm -hmm. the five that speak to you the most. Mm -hmm. And so my five were like, um, it was a beach theme you know which is yeah. obviously I love the ocean um mm-hmm. and then they gave you this like add on a spa level so it's kind of like your style and your sub style mm-hmm. and it makes perfect sense so now I know I'm like beach cottage slash home spa and oh, yeah. that makes me incredibly happy and so I'm like looking for more ways to incorporate that into my life and into my space mm-hmm. and building that visual collage has just been incredible um, yeah. and so I love it, not even starting with the writing yet, but just starting with mm-hmm. my actual space, you know, it's, it's been great. No, I love that. And I love how, how positive that is. Like so much of the stuff that we're dealing with is this like dark, twisty, ugly, you know? Yeah. And so to have something that is not, you know, I have to deal with this, I have to address this, but is, is also kind of looking toward what do I want? Right. Where do I want to be? What kind of environment do I want to have? Like, those things are so valuable. And mm-hmm. I love that you did that and sent it to me. And now I know how to shop for you. I know, which is great. But <laughs> so I, I, I love that. And it's, yeah. Pinterest can be great for that, too, to give people a sense of the things that you like so that when they shop for you, they can find the things, you know? Well, and it's great. It helped me articulate something that I wanted that I didn't know mm-hmm. how to articulate. And, yeah. and so being able to look over a collection of images, um, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, 
this is what I like. And now I can define it. And so for a long time, I've been saying, I want to redecorate my house mm-hmm. or I want to have this wonderful environment. And that's as far as I got. Yeah. And so now I can say, I want something that feels like a beach cottage mixed with a home spa. And it, it becomes clear. And, yes. that, you know, and then clarity can lead to action. And I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. hoping that will translate into creative work as well. But mm-hmm. your advice to start with my environment has been incredibly helpful. So thank you. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm glad that that, uh, that worked out for you because yeah. environment really is, it's one of those things I never paid attention to until Jenny Cruzy was the one who, uh, who got me to like really pay attention to environment and it made mm-hmm. such a huge difference. So I'm really glad it's worked for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And if, if any of our listeners have, has not read Faking It by Jennifer Cruzy, mm-hmm. that is my favorite Cruzy book. Oh, and I love that God. you it's quoted that too. one. <laughs> it's, it's my absolute too. favorite Cruzy. It's the first one I read yeah. by Cruzy. It's how I became a fan. And it all also mm-hmm. includes Wolfie, who was one of her dogs that I lived Aww. with for a number of years. And Wolfie passed on last year. Aww. So for me, faking it is very special because it has Wolfie in it. So <laughs> I love <sweet>. Wolfie. <laughs> so speaking of dogs, yes. you now have a new baby. I do. I do. We got a dog. His name is Pratchett, named for Sir Terry. Um, wonderful and, name. Uh, yeah, he's, he's just... A wonderful dog. He's like a mix of Pitbull, German Shepherd, Border Collie, um, and I think Lab is in there somewhere. Um, wow. He's he's just, he's such a good dog. He's so, he's got such a gentle nature, which is really great, but he's still protective, which is nice, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I just, I love him. He's such a good dog. So we've had a really good time with that. The girls and I have been enjoying that quite a bit, enjoying hanging That's out with wonderful. Pratchett and walking him and taking care of him. So yeah, he's, he's real good. So that's good. That's wonderful. So positive things as well. And I do think you're right. Mm -hmm. We're going to focus on a lot of really hard work in this Mm -hmm. podcast. I do think it's, it's good to spend the time to focus on the good and the fun. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Absolutely. All right. So getting into the hard stuff. (laughs) Getting into the hard stuff. Your reflections from last week. This has been a big aha week for you, right? So you had some pretty powerful reflections. Yeah, it has. Um, One of the things that we were talking about um, last week was owning your story, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've had some thoughts, I've done some thinks, and um, and I've realized (laughs) that that I haven't been owning my story entirely. (laughs) And so I kind of wanted to to bring that up. I've been I've been kind of talking around my experience a little bit because number two, and that's how I'm going to refer to this most recent husband. Um, and yes, the very specific bathroomy connotation there does give me the tiniest smidge of vengeful <laughs> delight. I am not a perfect person as we have covered many, many times. But number two is kind of a public person. We had a business together in which we were like by the absolute most generous stretching of the term internet personalities and now we've split into two he has his media company and he's producing podcasts i have mine i'm producing podcasts mine are better but the thing is (laughs) right now what i'm going through um i feel like i need to be honest about all of the things that i'm going through because it's not just a divorce you know um what i'm going through is much uglier and much more damaging than just a divorce i went through a regular divorce once and i know what that is it is hard and it's heartbreaking and it kicks your ass and if someone out there listening is going through a divorce it is real and I am not in any way diminishing how hard and devastating that process is that process by the way is enough but what I'm going through is not that um so I'm going to share my story not every ugly detail but the general gist of it 
And as I do this, I know there are people listening who, you know, love number two, they love his work, uh, they're engaged with his work. And to them, I say, you know, that's fine. If the work is good, go enjoy it, you know, get value out of it. And that's totally okay. You're not betraying me at all. And if you think that I'm betraying him by being honest about this, then that's a fine opinion. I disagree. Um, and mm-hmm. so I'm, because of that, because I've thought about it carefully, um, I'm going to go ahead and move forward with that. Um, so basically, I'm going to say what I always tell my kids to everybody listening to this, you know, think critically. Um, you're perfectly welcome to question my side of this story. And I think if you look at me critically, and you look at him critically, you know, I come out better, but whatever, because he's a lot of the stuff that he's done, he's done in public. And a lot of people have been having uh, like public conversations about it. And I have kept quiet. And a lot of people have told me how incredibly classy I am and, you know, how, how classy I've been about this whole thing. And it really wasn't about class. It was about fear. I wasn't staying quiet to have some kind of higher ground or to, to you know, be the classy person. I wasn't trying in any way to be Jennifer Aniston in this. I am not Jennifer Aniston. Never will be. I think she's incredibly classy. I am not that. Um, I just didn't know what the right thing was to do. I was basically just trying to survive the storm. So I battened down the hatches and I shut up as much as I could. Um, Aside from some subtweets, uh, (laughs) like this most recent SFD that I did in public and like occasional pointed comments, I really haven't said much publicly about the truth of this situation. Um, there are a lot of reasons for this. Mostly, I don't want to put anyone, like I said before, like I feel like it's it's gross for the people who follow me. Like They don't want to see that, and I don't want to put people in the middle. It feels like, you know, I don't want to slam dad to the kids, that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so, I mean, a lot of people, and, and anybody who wants like the details of that, it's out there. You can look for it. You can find it. You know, and that's fine, whatever. You know, there's more than all that. There's more than the affair. There's more than the betrayal. It's not just a divorce. Uh, My kid's therapist and a few other people have identified him to me as a charismatic sociopath. And I'm not saying that's what he is. I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't diagnose people. And the people who have said this to me, well, actually, some of the people who said this to me do know him personally, but the, the therapists, the mental health professionals who say it, you know, the people who don't say these things without hyperbole, you know, mm-hmm. um, or they don't say these things with hyperbole, um, you know, they, they've done it because of things that, that I've said and that my kids have said that have, have cropped up red flags about this kind of personality disorder. And so from the research I've done about charismatic sociopaths, I'm going to steal a page from Dr. Brown's book and I'm just going to say... I'm curious, you know, a lot of it is a perfect match. And the bottom line is while we were married, whatever he is, whatever label he might or might not have, um, he hurt me and my kids in little ways and big for like six years. Um, It's not just a marriage falling apart. I mean, that's bad enough. That's hard enough. But this is six years of control and manipulation and emotional abuse. And the thing is, when I talk about him, I don't want to talk about that. I have places to talk about him, you know, being a bad person, like privately. Um, But I think that it's important for this process that I don't hide, that I don't dissemble, that I don't pretend that it isn't what it is. You know, what I'm going through is serious and maybe I didn't do anything wrong and maybe he did a lot wrong. But the bottom line is I'm no one's fucking victim. I mean, this is my process and I own it. And by owning the things that I need to fix about me, 
I can prevent anyone from ever being able to do this to me again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and another reason why I wanted to share all of this is because I looked at Dr. Brown and her Speedo last week and I thought, bitch, please, you know, <laughs> it's wrong to compare pain. And I know that. But if what anyone out there, anyone listening is going through is worse than not looking good in a Speedo, if what they're going through is ugly and so ugly that they don't want to look at it, let alone be curious and integrated into their whole self. You know, I want those listeners to know that like, I'm with you. Like my shit is ugly. You know, it is dark. It is wrong. And I don't want to pretend that it's less than it is because there are people out there going through really horrible things who are being honest about their process. And I feel like I have a responsibility to those people to be honest about this and to tell you know, the extent of the story that I have. So I'm scratching my way through ugliness and through horror and through abuse and lies and gaslighting. And maybe, you know, what somebody else out there has is worse than that. But what I've got is not pretty. And I'm not going to pretend that it's anything else. And if that helps anyone out there to feel better, you know, to feel like they can share their ain't pretty you know, mm -hmm. then, then, okay, we're in this together. But I don't want people to think that I don't want to downplay what I'm going through for the purpose of politeness, because I think we've gotten past politeness here. And I think that it's important, especially for people who are also going through like the really kind of ugly things that make you feel ashamed and abuse, no matter what, always makes the victim feel like it's their fault, you know, and it's right. not. Um, and I think that that's something that I need to talk about, that I need to express in order to be honest in this process. And I want people out there who are going through really ugly things to know that, yeah, you know, I am too. I think that's amazingly brave of you. And I think it's important to point out here that you're not doing this for the purpose of, um, vindication or right. you know, any kind of ugliness. This is about owning your story. Mm -hmm. And it's especially complicated and difficult for you because the other person involved in your story mm -hmm. chose way before you to make a lot of this public. And that was not yeah. your choice. No, you know? it wasn't and my choice. Yeah, that was not your choice. And so you you're responding to that now in the best way that you can in the way that feels mm -hmm. right for you. And I think it's, it's just more challenging and more difficult because, um, you know, one of the reasons that, that we came together as friends and to talk about this is because mm -hmm. I, you know, I told you I had been in a very abusive relationship a long time ago and that mm -hmm. it was difficult to talk about it because it's so ugly. Yeah. And I think having a safe space to say, you know what, other women have, have survived this too, or, and men, yes, you know, right. I mean, and, women are not the only people who get abused and for right, men, it's absolutely. so much harder because they yes. feel like they don't have a right to their experience. Absolutely. You know? But if anyone ever treats you in a way that makes you feel ugly on the inside, it is difficult to talk about it. Yeah. And one of the best ways to heal is to have someone who's lived through it say to you, you know what? Someone made me feel like that too, but I yeah. got better. And so can you. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about like the soap opera, Jerry Springer sharing nitty gritty. It's, it's sharing for the purpose of owning your story and healing. And it's just more complicated for you because a lot of this was done publicly without mm -hmm. your permission, without yeah. your consent. Well, she's you know? been extremely public. Like the thing is like, I don't ever think that it's the, it's the job of the other person in an affair to like protect the marriage. Like that's the job of the people in the marriage. Right. 
but she has been so public, like gloating about this thing. And I feel like like I kept quiet until she started doing that. And then I was like, all right, you know, if you get to gloat about it, then you get to deal with, you know, the fact that what you did was a really horrible thing. And so it's actually right. her publicly gloating that mm-hmm. to me, you know, was the bad thing. Like affairs happen, you know, marriages mm-hmm. fall apart, like whatever. But she has been right. horrible and, and behaving just reprehensibly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she's allowed to do all that, but I'm not allowed to tweet. Right. Well, and with that, I mean, you were entitled to your privacy. And in addition Mm -hmm. to the hellstorm that you were going through, your privacy was also taken away from you. Was not respected at all because they could have just shut up about it, but they didn't. Right. And so I think it's you're almost having to do this, you know, at a meta level where you have to deal with pain and betrayal, but you have to deal with it in a public space, which makes it worse. You Mm -hmm. had a business together and untangling that is incredibly difficult. You know, having, and so it's, it's, it is, it's a very difficult process that you're having to go through. And this podcast for the purpose of big, strong, yes, is a safe space Mm -hmm. for you. And so that is, that, that is the intent. And that is the purpose of, of this podcast is to have a safe space for that discussion for you and for anyone listening who also needs it. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, the thing is, like, nobody's experience is going to be an exact mirror. But when you talked to me, and you were like, I've been through this, you know, like that made such a huge difference for me. Like that was to know that somebody I respected so much had been through something similar. And you're so smart. Like, I felt like I was, I'm so smart. Like, how can I be this stupid? How could I have believed all of these lies for all of these years? You know, Mm -hmm. I struggled with um, that too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really hard to not hold yourself responsible for believing it, you Mm -hmm. know, and for thinking that there was something real there when there wasn't, you know. And And, and so having somebody who I I love and respect as much as I love and respect you say, yeah, that was me, too. I mean, that was that I can't even tell you that saved my life. Well, and the same thing, and I'm I'm glad and I'm glad that I could be there for you. But the, the same thing had happened to me. I had a, a woman who was a friend of mine, uh-huh. fellow PhD, who is smart, mm-hmm. probably one of the smartest people on the planet. Beautiful, kind. I mean, seriously, if I didn't love her, mm-hmm. I would hate her guts. She is just, <laughs> she's so wonderful in so many ways. Uh-huh. Um, but before we became close, I had kind of, you know, the story I was making up mm-hmm. about her was this kind of perfect person, perfect life, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, until she shared her story with me and she had survived a very abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and it hit me like a ton of bricks to realize if a woman that smart, who I loved and respected that much had also known what it felt like to have someone make her feel ugly and worthless and she Mm -hmm. was better then I could get Mm -hmm. better too. And, and it was just the power of that is, is immeasurable, you know, and when Brene Brown talks about sharing our stories, I really believe Mm -hmm. this is what she means. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah. So I say, good for you, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, honey. I just, you know, I feel like, I feel like I need to, you know, I need to be honest about it. I can't pretend that it's, it's not as ugly as it is. And it's really ugly. So, hey, how about we move on from that? Okay. And into the reading. There we go. Let's do that. (laughs) All right. So what did you get out of this reading? So I think the big themes for me were, um, well, there's, there's three or four. Let's start with Mm -hmm. curiosity and reckon. And so on uh, page 44 in the paperback, Brene Brown says, curiosity is a shit starter, but that's okay. 
Sometimes we have to rumble with a story to find the truth. And I, my first reaction to that was, amen, hell yes, let's tell our stories. <laughs> and then I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> what if, what if, what if I really am like a bad, ugly person? Oh. And so that fear is always right there, right? You you get brave yeah. and you're like, I'm going to rumble with my story, bitches. Exactly. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Let me back up here. Right. I take it back. Um and and for me, you know, I have made many, many mistakes in my life. My mm-hmm. mistakes are, are legion. Um, mm-hmm. And overcoming those mistakes has made me mm-hmm. a less judgmental, more empathetic person. I think yeah. I'm smarter and more generous. I have become pretty damn steady. I, you mm-hmm. know, I can, I can be a rock for someone. I'm a good mom. I'm a good friend. I'm a good teacher. I can own those things. But I worry underneath that all that I'm still like a bad apple. And and I don't mm-hmm. want to get curious about that. I just want to keep working and make it go away. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I can assure you that you are not a bad apple. Um, but, but I, I know that, that feeling, like you're yeah. afraid of what you're going to find, you know? Right. Like if you open that crate and it's like, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's your own reflection in that crate, it makes things a little more difficult. But I, you know, I've said for years, curiosity is the fuel of lifelong learning. You want to get smarter, Mm -hmm. get curious about the universe, about history, about other people's perspectives, about the meaning of words, the source of your biases, what makes you laugh. Like, you know, get curious about why you love what you love and you'll learn a lot about yourself in the world. And I'm curious about so many things. I would stay in graduate school for the rest of my life if tuition was free. (laughs) But when it comes to my own crap and my own feelings, Mm -hmm. I don't feel curious. I just feel resistant. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so the thought of owning my story scares the shit out of me. And when I get scared, I get mad. And this (laughs) this chapter had me, you know, talking back and writing a whole lot of sarcasms in the in the Uh in the margins. You know, like (laughs) it all comes back to story. Well, damn. How am I supposed to write my own story around a bunch of shit that I can't control? So (laughs) then on on page 46, she wrote, um, we disengaged to self-protect. And beside that, I wrote, ouch. Mm -hmm. And I decided that that counted as reckoning because ouch is an emotion, right? No, that's good. (laughs) No, that's really good. That is. That's progress. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I remember that too. We disengaged to self-protect and I thought, oh, wow, you know, because Mm -hmm. that's like, that's a whole thing, you know, Um, when she was talking about like all of the things that, that people do and like the offloading of pain. You know, the chandeliering, got that. The bouncing, oh yeah. The numbing, uh uh-huh. The stockpiling. Mm -hmm. It's like, is this bingo? Do I win a prize if I like hit them all? You know? (laughs) You know, and then she goes into she goes into this whole thing where she's like, you know, the opposite of offloading is integrating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I have no idea how to do that, but it's okay because like this chapter is just about the reckoning. It is about that curiosity about like engaging with that curiosity and looking at at things you know one of the things she says um i have the hardcover so you have the paperback and i have the hardcover my hardback on page 45 says you either walk into your story and own your truth or you live outside of your story hustling for your worthiness mm-hmm. and that completely spoke to me and my experience because i've been hustling for worthiness from like day one like I've you know a few years ago when I was doing that blog that I've I've talked about 
Um, I had written uh, an entry that was about there's nothing wrong with me with wrong in a capital W, you know, Mm -hmm. that I had felt like since I was born that um, that I was somehow deficient. I was somehow less than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I started from a further back point. And in order for me to be as good, as worthy as everyone else, I had to work twice as hard. I had to be twice as good. I had to like all of these things like I couldn't believe that I had value just by being me like I had to have value by providing a service and one of the things that I did was I was always funny mm-hmm. you know so I was like so yeah. no matter what in my social relationship like if I make people laugh if I cheer them up if I this is where the chipperish comes from right if yeah. I cheer them up I make them happy then I've earned my space like I never feel like I earn my space in any relationship unless I'm providing some kind of service that just me yeah. being me is not enough for people to to want to be around me, to want to be friends with me, to love me, that it's never enough, you know? So this whole thing about hustling for your worthiness, you either walk into your story and own your truth or you live outside Mm -hmm. of your story hustling for your worthiness. I have been unpacking that sentence for like seriously a week. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And I I totally get that because Mm -hmm. um, when I hear that people use that expression, you know, like I am enough or you're supposed to say that. And I always think, what the hell are they talking about? Like, how yeah, can you exactly. possibly be enough just by I am being enough. yourself and being alive? Like, what? Right. Um, I'm the same way. And I mm-hmm. and I think it comes from, um, and I also have always felt less than or, mm-hmm. you know, worse than or, or sure. unworthy in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And so I'm a people pleaser. And right. I do that by doing, you know, lots of work for people um, and, and, you know, giving too much, which is, is where my comes right. from uh-huh. I mean that's how it, it manifests um and I don't know what it is but the idea of saying I am enough I I still cannot even begin to accept that sentence I'm yeah, like no so me I, just being here breathing taking up <laughs> enough space like that's good by itself no girl I am not even close <laughs> I know no I look at that and it feels like um it feels like I'm looking at it in another language but not just another language but like another language with another kind of alphabet like not a Roman yes. language you yes, know it's like Cyrillic exactly. to me yes. like I look it, at it and I think okay that's pretty in writing mm-hmm. and I hear the words but I don't, it's like when you talk to a dog and the dog just looks at you and doesn't hear anything until you say his name. It's blah, 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 Pratchett, right? That's what this is. It's blah, 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 Pratchett for me. Like that, I don't, you know, and this I am enough stuff. And I, I still have not been able to wrap my mind around it. Although intellectually, I understand it. And for everybody else, I'm like, shit, yeah, you're enough. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like, I look at you and I say, you're enough. Oh, and I do that with you, too. I look at my son and I'm like, baby, Mm -hmm. you are a wonderful shining star in the universe. And the world is a better place because you're here. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about you and my friends. But Mm -hmm. it's it's always been kind of a broken place that I have struggled with. Um, So I have a lot of reckoning to do with that idea. Um, but I, I did, I did learn a lot from her about the, the reckoning and what she means Mm -hmm. by that. And on page 46 in the paperback, she says the word reckon comes from the middle English reckoning, uh, Mm -hmm. meaning to narrate or to make an account. So it really all does come back to story and it's the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and also the stories we allow others to tell us about ourselves. Right. Um, but growing up in the deep South, the word reckon means I guess so, or probably, or like an informal agreement. Yeah. So I reckon, for example, right. mm-hmm. yeah, I reckon I'm going to need some more wine before I finish <laughs> this chapter. 
Um, or <laughs> if you said to me, hey, you want to skip this part and talk about Buffy rising strong out of the grave, Willow's big magic, and Spike <laughs> saying yes to his destiny, my response would be, hell yeah, I reckon that's a lot easier than reading this chapter. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm having to redefine that. Yeah. But, but she also says the good news is that in the reckoning phase, we don't have to pinpoint the emotion accurately. We just have to recognize that we're feeling something. Yeah. And then there will be time to sort it out later. And so on page 47 in the paperback, she actually gives some shitty first draft prompts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and for those of you who don't have the book, I thought we'd share a couple of these. Um, sure. So it's like, I don't know what's happening, but I just want to hide. Mm-hmm. I I just want to punch a wall. Mm-hmm. I want Oreos. Lots of them. <laughs> And then it, she has one, I feel blank. And you fill in the words like disappointed, yeah. regretful, you know, pissed, hungry, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I am blank in a lot of pain, feeling vulnerable in a shame storm, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's helpful just to use these kind of I feel, I am, I want, I just know as a starter for this sort of taking your own pulse and thinking mm-hmm. about how you're feeling and what you're experiencing and then just doing that in your shitty first draft. So it's very helpful, but I, I would be lying if I said at the end of this, oh yeah, we got through chapter four with the reckoning and I've got it now and I am integrated and I am ready to go because right. I'm going to be working on this one for a long no, time. We got to get through. I mean, I am, I am having trouble reckoning with just reckoning, like with, yeah. with what it means <laughs> and how I, how I do it. Like, mm-hmm. It's it's one of these things I'm I'm starting to to kind of get a feel for it but I think this is the kind of thing that like like everything that's worth doing it takes practice and it takes time and you have to realize that you've lived your whole life avoiding exactly this process and so your your experience with it is going to be limited and it's like trying to do any new skill like it's going to take a while before you understand it. It's going to take a while before you know how to do it. And, um, and I, I'm like, you know, I, I actually tried to reckon a little bit with some of the stuff that's happening in, in this chapter. Um, she talks about stories and narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yep. specifically for me, the idea of narrative is, is a big problem. Um, on page 46 in the hardback, she says, the rising strong reckoning has two deceptively simple parts. One, engaging with our feelings and two, getting curious about the story behind our feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that stuff that kind of like really gets me, you know, I, I, that's where I kind of like skid, like, you know, those cartoons where the, the thing is running really fast and it skids. And then there's like these <laughs> like deep trenches in the, in the dirt because of the skid. That's where I get with this. Cause fiction uses events that are not literally true to get to the heart of things that are emotionally true. I mean, that is the purpose of fiction mm-hmm. and real truth is accessed through fiction at times where it's hard to reach in, you know, reality. And I have dedicated my professional life to the study and expression of narrative. I mean, obviously, I'm a big fan of all of this stuff. But much of what has hurt me in my life is the essential malleability of reality. I mean, I was raised by a narcissist. And then I married, you know, number two, who is, you know, very possibly has been talked about as a charismatic sociopath. 
And both of those personality types rely on my ability to see the world through their narrative, which isn't true, but it helps them to control me because if what they say is true is true, then I will do what they want me to do. You know, I will behave the way they want me to behave. I have a big guilt button, right? Mm -hmm. And if you push it in the lightest way, like I will absolutely respond to it. I will chandelier, I will feel terrible and I will do whatever you want just that I can prove that I'm not a terrible person. And both of these people have used that guilt button in order to control me. And the thing is, when you do it with a gentle touch, then I'm, I'm completely controllable. Um, when I start to pull away, this is what happened with my mother, and this is what's happening now with number two. Uh, when I start to pull away, uh, they hit the button harder, like so super right. hard that eventually it breaks, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I am now. But I mean, this is what has happened to me. So the idea of engaging with stories, you know, in quotes, like the experience that I'm finally acknowledging as actual reality is somehow just as full of shit as their narratives were. Um, that's where I get into like real ugliness, you know, because it, it, it bothers me um, and, and makes me feel like, oh, so this isn't real either. So nothing's real. So I don't know what's real. Right. And I need really desperately to know what reality is. I mean, I don't care if it's ugly. I just need to know what's real. And, you know, one of the things that's been happening over the past few months is that he will call me and he will tell me things that aren't true, that are demonstrably not true, that are not backed up by his actions, but he'll say them to me in a way that makes him sound like the man that I married, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I engage with him, like that reality gets all warped and twisty again. So the idea of like, what's my story here or the story that I'm telling myself for me is, is a really difficult thing for me to reckon with. I mean, I hear that my response is, so you're going to tell me that my experience isn't true. You're going to tell me once again that what I believe mm -hmm. to be reality is not true, you know? And I loved them, you know, because I couldn't see like what they were really doing and believe that they were worthy of my love and devotion. I chose to to love and be devoted to them over reality, over my self-care, over what was best for me. And now as I'm in recovery, like I need reality to fucking be real. Mm -hmm. And I'm at this point where I don't know what is. You know, like, and so when, when she talks to me about stories and about narrative, it makes me feel like she's saying, this isn't your reality. This is just what you think it is. This is just the story that you're telling yourself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, I know that I would not choose this reality. This is not the reality I choose. The reality I chose was the one that hurt me, you right. know, was the one that allowed them to hurt me. And now I'm, I'm facing a reality that I didn't choose, that I didn't want, but that I have to believe is real because the rest of the world lines up with it. It's not twisted and warpy the way that it is when I'm in their reality, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. I mean, did that whole story narrative thing, did that, did that get you the way that it got me? Well, I think it hits us a little differently because I, with time, mm -hmm. have gotten to the point that I can see reality clearly. Yeah. But I understand your struggle with it because it's mm -hmm. really hard. Yeah. Um, and I think it, for me, it helps me... Um, because sometimes I assume negative intent or I self-protect yeah. in advance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so if you have that kind of personality, if you defend first, which I do, it's an incredibly helpful tool because it yeah. helps me to ask myself, what is the story I'm making up? You know, what is mm -hmm. true? But I have also learned to to use that same tool and say, what story is this other person telling? Mm -hmm. And that has become incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. So like 
because I was a notoriously terribly behaved teenager, um, everyone who knows me, I mean, everyone who raised me and has known me my whole life, that Uh is still the frame of reality that they hold for me. And so Mm -hmm. no matter how much I accomplish, no matter how much I do, um, it will still get thrown up in my face from time to time. And it has been incredibly powerful to realize that I can say the story that they're telling is based on 16-year-old Kelly. Mm-hmm. that story is not based on almost 40 year old dr jones that right. story mm-hmm. is no longer true right you know that story is coming from their need to guilt me that story is coming from something that i used to let be true that is no longer true right mm-hmm. so i think just not assuming that you're wrong is the first step in that oh. like you don't have to take you don't have to take that and say I must be saying something wrong or I must be doing something wrong, right? You can start using that question as a filter for what other people are trying to tell you as well. And that yeah. can be incredibly empowering. Yeah, I don't, uh, God, no, I just had the sudden like light bulb when you said that because I don't ever hold their stories up to the Same. critical light. I hold mine up to it. Right. So it's not about holding, you know, and it, it is helpful. Like if you find yourself, defensive if you find yourself pushing people away then it is Uh helpful to hold your story up to that light but if someone is hurting you then you hold theirs up yeah right and so it doesn't always have to be self-facing sometimes you got to turn that mirror around wow yeah no I never do that because I've always looked to you know raised by my mom who would tell all these stories would tell me something was true one day and the next day it wasn't and made me think that I was always wrong that I would always look to a third party right to validate whatever my reality is. And if the person that I'm closest to is someone who is going to reflect back at me, whatever story gives them control over me, that's right. You know, then that's what I'm going to believe. And you know, the thing is my first husband didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Like he was, he's a really good man. I mean, we weren't right for each other, but he's a really good man. He was always honest with me. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, that's like why with number two, it was so shocking you know, that, that I believed that I was the one who was wrong, that I always believed that I was the one who, who had somehow screwed up or, or didn't understand things properly and needed him to tell me, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, no, that's like just the idea of holding up other people's narratives to that, you know, to that critical, you know, and I keep thinking of like in the interrogation, you know, where they've got that big bright light that like shines in the face. Like I always have that shining in my own face, but I don't shine that on other people yeah. because I've always relied on other people to define reality for me. So that's... Right. I'm going to be chewing over that for a while, Dr. Jones. You're good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, but I mean, so part of this is I, I did go through therapy and I'm very glad you're going through it now Yeah. because, and Dr. Brown talks about that in the book too, that complicated grief, complicated trauma, it, yeah. you require the help of someone else to, to, mm-hmm. to help you with this, someone who's trained. Uh, but like, so that story that I just told you about mine, it's not in our script. It's not in my notes. I'm very uncomfortable. As soon as I said it out loud, I flinched. Like, I hate sharing that stuff. But as soon as I did, it helped the light bulb go off for you. And so I just have to keep remembering that. Like, this is the purpose of sharing stories because this is how we help each other. Absolutely. Right? And so, Well, thank you for doing that because I know it's really hard, but it was really helpful for me. So thank you. Well, and other people have done that for me Mm -hmm. as well. But when someone else, and so when you're learning how to use these tools, like the idea of what's my story here, 
what story am I telling here? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need someone to come up and say, hey, you know what? If you twist that a little, the tool works a lot better. Right. Like if you're learning how to to do something and show and someone shows you, hey, if you turn that hammer around, it's going to be a lot more effective. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I think that Mm -hmm. that's the power of going through this work together. And then, you know, all the people that are participating as well, because you're not left on your own to try to figure out this new tool. Um, Right. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that that is that's for you. That's maybe why you're struggling with that idea of the story you're telling here so much, because you're used to you're used to blaming yourself. And girl, you've had enough of that. That's done. (laughs) You think (laughs) that is you think? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's hard, though. I mean, like, it is hard for me to say, like, I look at this intellectually and I say, none of this is my fault. But emotionally, yeah. I say, all of this is my fault. Like, I was so stupid. Right. But you're not. You're not stupid. You're wonderful. And you have an open heart. And people that know how to manipulate an open heart have hurt you. And that does not take away from your value. And it does not take away from your magic. And it does not take away from your power. Because now... You're standing back up and you're saying, all right, motherfucker, this is my story. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You have no place here. You have no place here. All right. So what else did you get out of this? What else did you see in this chapter? So the other thing that hit me pretty hard is um, the idea of of the physical response. So inquiry and the body. Mm -hmm. And so um, when she talks about inquiring into what's wrong, getting creative and I'm sorry, getting curious about Mm -hmm. our emotion and our experiences, it made me realize that research can't help if we don't ask the right questions. And Mm -hmm. she, she talks about the, our bodies respond to emotions before we even have time to think. So like you're going to have a physical reaction before you have time to process the mental reaction, which reminded me of the idea of an amygdala hijacking. So when you study Mm -hmm. the brain, you know that emotional center is is the amygdala. And if you've ever seen someone lose it over something simple, like trying to return an <laughs> item at the store and it doesn't go well and they just completely right. melt down, right? Or someone that, you know, stands up in a dinner party and says, I'm now going to tell you all about this person's dirty laundry because I'm mad and I just lost my shit. Um, mm-hmm. But when you are completely overwhelmed by emotion to the point where you don't really understand what you're doing, you're experiencing an amygdala hijacking from your brain. Right. And it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so she, it's, it's easy to, to get steamrolled over emotion. And I think that's one, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I have my emotional crate because trying to become (laughs) professional, right. Trying to build this career Uh um, is much easier to do if I'm calm and steady. Right. And that Mm -hmm. emotional roller coaster does not make for a great academic. <laughs> and so um, I think part of that is learning how to listen to my body again and ask, okay, something's making my stomach hurt. Could it be mm-hmm. an emotional response <laughs> to something? Could right? that be? Could that be? Um, yeah. Maybe I don't need the cookie. Maybe I'm feeling mm-hmm. something. Like, And, and so I think just, just realizing that this ties in not just to environment and not just to emotion, but to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. part of that is going to be listening to that and honoring that and caring for myself in those ways that have been incredibly out of practice for me. So mm-hmm. what about you? No, what I else? Think that's good. Yeah. What else did you um, get out of this chapter? 
Well, I got to say, like, the idea of reckoning as navigation, yeah. I thought was was really valuable to me. On page 46 of the hardback, she says, in navigation, the term reckoning, as in dead reckoning, is the process of calculating where you are. And I like the idea of reckoning as a location process. That kind of helped open it up for me, I think, a little bit. Because yeah. before that, I was kind of like, I don't know. How do I reckon? I'm not from the South. I don't know how to reckon. <laughs> um, but just figuring out, like, where I am, not necessarily understanding where I am but just like where just like the geolocation like I thought about that and the note that I actually wrote in the margin is okay I can do that which is the first time in this book that I thought oh no I can do this like okay so I mean I felt like that was a good place for me to plant my feet and what was also helpful to me was on page 47 of the hardback Dr. Brown says the good news is that in our reckoning we don't have to pinpoint the emotion accurately we just need to recognize that we're feeling something and I'm like, okay, like this is like, like the baby steps, you know, like the things right. like, okay, I can do that. I may not know exactly what I'm feeling, but you're, you're talking about that like physical sense in the body. Like there are certain things, certain emotions that present as like a, you know, for me, like a feeling in the pit of my stomach. For me, I get, um, I get like a, a cold feeling in my, in the middle of my back, you know, mm-hmm. like almost like that cold sweat kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like certain things. And when, if I take the time to recognize that this is happening and to to reckon with it and try to identify what that emotion is, eventually I'm going to be able to know, oh, that feeling on my back, that means this. Oh, that feeling on my stomach, that means this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually kind of liked that. And, um, you know, I felt like really overwhelmed last week by the idea of reckoning, like, how do I do it? How do I face it? I don't understand. You know, and, and all I can think about is that song from the nightmare before Christmas. What's this? What's this? There's magic everywhere. Like this whole thing, you know? Um, and, and so I have kind of like this, this image of Jack Skellington just being like, what's this? And the fact that he doesn't have a body, you know, that he's just, just a skeleton for some reason that, that imagery for me, I find kind of helpful. So I'm like, I'm like nightmare before Christmas with this, I guess. I love <laughs> <Anyway>. it. <laughs> That's great. Well, but, yeah, so. but having a mental framework or a metaphor or any kind of connection that you can make with this is so incredibly important. Um, and one thing she talked about, it's on page 55 in the paperback, but she mm-hmm. said that when you're maintaining like a perspective, a perspective of curiosity, Mm-hmm. You have to know that um, we have to have some level of knowledge or awareness before we can get curious. We aren't curious about something we're unaware of or know nothing about. And mm-hmm. for me, as a learning specialist, I immediately thought of the idea of a schema, which is like your schema is a cognitive map. It's a, a connection uh-huh. of neurons that allow you to understand the concept of something. So if you've ever driven around with a little kid, like a toddler, who understands what a dog is, the first Mm -hmm. time that child sees a cow on the side of the road, they're not going to say cow. They're going to say big dog because they have have a schema for an animal that has four legs that's kind of shaped like that. They don't yet have a schema Mm -hmm. for cow, right? So you connect Mm -hmm. and through those connections, you grow to bigger ideas of more animals and different kinds of things. But without that initial area of understanding, without that curiosity to build connections, you can't mm-hmm. learn new things. Okay. Right? No, so, I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for you, if you can connect that to a metaphor, to a story, to a movie, 
the active process of making that connection is going to help you with this work. And that's true for anything you're trying to learn, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's very helpful, you know, for me as well to connect, okay, this emotion feels like this in my body. Mm-hmm. Like, and then actually saying that out loud or writing that down for myself is like, I'm going to build a schema for what emotion feels like physically. And it's a really right. good, no, that's you know, so great. So, and, and she talked about that within the concept of a dry emotional well. And I know we both made mm-hmm. notes about that. So what do you yeah. think of, of the idea of the well and what does that mean? Um, well, you know, I mean, I've, I've often used the well as, as a metaphor before in like, I, I talk about it, you know, in terms of storytelling, like the creative well, like you have to fill the creative well, you know? Um, and I hadn't really thought about it in terms of the emotional well and, and what happens when you just don't have it, you know, you just mm-hmm. don't have, you've, you've exhausted yourself. These emotions are running wild and you haven't reckoned with them and you haven't understood them. And so like what happens? And I went through her whole list, you know, of all the things and I, I felt like most of the dry emotional well stuff didn't really apply to me. I mean, I do have have access to a lot of emotions. I tend to use them in storytelling. I tend to use mm-hmm. them in analysis. I tend to like engage with them there. You know, all of my my novels are, are highly emotional novels. Um, you know, so I have those elements that I engage with, but not necessarily, you know, with my real life. I think I kind of like shove them off there. But but number in, number six and number seven were two things that I felt really applied to me. Uh, uncertainty is too uncomfortable. And I can definitely ride with that like you know like uncertainty is something that I feel very strongly that you have to be comfortable with and intellectually I'm very comfortable with uncertainty Mm -hmm. I'm intellectually like I love when I can say I don't know and then try to find it and get curious like intellectual curiosity for me not an issue love that but emotionally emotionally no it's not it's not where I go. And then there was also engaging and asking questions invites trouble. Like when you were talking earlier, what if I go through this process and I find out that, you know, I'm an asshole. Like, right. what, <laughs> what if that's what comes out? What if that's what I learn? And so a lot of times I will shut down like the ugly stuff, you know, um, the ugly stuff, I will shut down, I will go away from it, because I don't want to discover what's underneath that ugly stuff. It's like that rock out in the backyard that you're like, I'm not picking that up. I don't know what's mm-hmm. under that rock. <laughs> like, yep. you know? So I mean, it kind of feels like that. So how did you respond to the to the emotional well concept? So when she talked about kind of having a dry emotional well, it, it took me a minute to, to really be able to process her meaning. Mm -hmm. And I realized she's really talking about how you were taught to engage with your emotions, like your emotional education or your emotional awareness or your ability to embrace Mm -hmm. your emotions, Um, which for me, is pretty much non-existent. And so when she gave these seven ideas that you might have Uh been, you know, raised with or or gotten used to or believed, um, pretty much all seven were true for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was raised to believe that emotion is a sign of vulnerability. Um, I was raised mm-hmm. in a very um, male dominated family. And so mm-hmm. I am very much a um, resistant feminist that I have. It is it is in a hard one line of feminism in my world because mm-hmm. that is not how I was raised. And so emotion yeah. is always negatively connotated with with Mm -hmm. femininity and and it bugs me 
but that that was the reality I was raised in. Well, then you went into academia. Yeah, and it made it even worse. <laughs> exactly. I mean, my God. So right? your feminism is hard won and yes. well earned. And I think that that's awesome. Like, I will fucking own that. And I'm raising yeah. an 18 year old male feminist. Um, yeah. Very intentionally in, an, in a way that I try to make things more clear for him. So he, he can kind of understand, you know, and his emotional upbringing is, is very, very different than my own. Um, but I struggle with all of these, you know, with, with numbing Mm -hmm. emotions, with not having the vocabulary to access emotions before therapy. I didn't know how to talk about any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then don't ask someone how they're feeling because they might tell you and, oh dear God, then you have to engage in an emotional (laughs) conversation and I don't want to do it. (laughs) You know, um, so all of the things that she talked about there were very difficult for me. And Mm -hmm. when she, and I think I share with Brene Brown, you know, we were both raised in, in just not emotional kinds of families. And she says, you know, she's curious about the world and she wants to learn about everything except emotions and I wrote down right me too (laughs) (laughs) but you guys have so much in common I'm more Elizabeth Gilbert like when we get to big magic I'm gonna be like yeah this is this is me but yeah yeah. no that's that's very cool I love that I love that you have that you know that academic intellectual kind of background I think that it you think everything through so much that whenever you say anything I feel like I can trust it. You know what I'm saying? Like you're my Ed- you're my Edward R. Murrow. You know, like oh, like Lord. I feel like you've thought things through. You know that you don't like I I I you know shoot from the hip so much where I'm like I don't know I guess maybe it's this whatever and I think that that can be valuable in the kind of work that I do you know because it's that kind of curiosity that kind of you know like what is it and and not deciding that I know everything but that there's always room for things that I don't know you know which I think yeah. is really great um, so I mean sometimes I'll say things and then somebody will call me on it I'll be like yeah that was completely wrong you're right like I totally <laughs> but when you speak I feel like you have thought this shit through. You know, and I like that. Well, the problem is, and I, but I love that about you because um, I can, I will definitely, the the deep thoughts and and theory Mm -hmm. and philosophy and life perspective and all of those things. Yes, I have thought through and I have studied, but when you need to be creative, you kind of have to speed that shit up. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah even though it may not be right and it may right? not be thought through but right you need and to so experience my fear of it. being yeah. wrong keeps me from from doing the creative work that I want to do mm-hmm. and like I don't have you can't spend five years just choosing the topic that you want to write about right so it, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that that I'm learning from you to embrace an idea and it may not be right, but it's okay. And I can still play with it, um, which is very difficult for me to do because my I fear being wrong. I have a very difficult I know. time with that. That's That can be really tough. But I mean, one of the things that has been, one of the most liberating things that has ever happened to me <laughs> was when I got to that point where I could say, I don't know. You know, right. like, and, and intellectually, I think that I, I'm very comfortable with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, even when I'm teaching a class, if a student asks me a question and I don't have an answer for it, like I'll own up to that. I'll be like, yeah. I don't know. Like, oh, I I'll t- look into yes. it. I'll think about it. I'll find out, yep. you know? I can and do that's, that. And, and I, and I love yeah. doing that actually, because saying, mm-hmm. I don't know, and I will find out. Is it's how, so empowering. And that's the first step of research, you know? Yeah. But if mm-hmm. I think I know and I answer and it's wrong, that's a whole mm-hmm. nother ballgame. So right. No, I, that can know, be. I, I, that I worry about. So 
Yeah. But well, um, I mean, I have tons of that. Like I've been on the Internet. I've been podcasting for 10 years and there's so much stuff that I've said in the past on a podcast about things that I didn't understand as thoroughly as I understand them now where I'm like, no, I was wrong. You know? yeah. <laughs> but I said it you right. know? and I've got to kind of like deal with that. So I think because I have so much like publicly accessible examples of me being wrong that I've kind of become somewhat desensitized to it where I'm like okay yeah you know what I I well and truly fucked that up sorry no but I love that about you I love Mm. that about you I think I just got used to it (laughs) well I think it's great so I I know that there were some some parts of this there's a quote um in this book that we both responded to very strongly um it's Mm -hmm. on let's see it's on p- page 58 of your book. It's, yes. Oh, it's also yes. on page 58 of mine. Oh, um, yay. So we may so, have the same page references yes, for all we, we know. Yeah. We, both, we both marked this one um, from, yeah. from this poem. So I'm going to ask you to read this because you read this beautifully. And let's talk about uh, this one. Okay. And this is one of the things where those of you playing the Lonnie Cries drinking game, <laughs> go ahead and fill up your glasses. Um, <laughs> on page 58, she quotes Mizuda Masahide. Um, who wrote, Barnes burnt down, now I can see the moon. And when I read that, I just started to, I mean, I wept when I read that. And so, like, I mean, I had the, like you're saying, the amygdala, like I had the emotional response before I understood intellectually why I was having that response. Right. So I reckoned with it. I practiced my reckoning and it was really, it was kind of cool. It's like, why did this hit me so hard? What was it about this that made me just fall apart? And I realized that it was... It was gratitude. Like, I'm going to work the metaphor for a little bit. So forgive me because I'm, I'm working it pretty hard. But I lived in a shitty ass barn for like six years. I mean, it was full of crap and broken glass and dark areas that I either didn't want to see or I wasn't allowed to look at. But he told me it was a castle. And I was like, okay, sure. It's a castle. You know, fine. And then after six years of that, he lit the place on fire <laughs> And left me and my kids still inside. Like he burned it down. And I had sacrificed and compromised and worked my ass off to avoid the broken glass, the dark shadows, all for him because I thought it would make him happy in this thing that he saw as a castle. And I believed, I truly believed it was a castle and that my understanding of the broken glass and the dark places was just wrong. I ignored that and I ignored it for him because I loved him. And then he burned it down and left me in the middle of it to choke and die on the smoke without even caring about what happened to me and to my kids. And for a long time, I was just, my head was down. Like all I could see was the ash and the shadows and the broken glass. And sometimes the broken glass would reflect the moonlight back at me, but I never looked at it directly. It was always a fractured reflection. And I didn't want to believe that there was anything in existence, but my pain and that ash and what he did to me and how unfair it all was. And now I think I'm starting to look up, you know, like I'm seeing the moon and I'm realizing that the barn was nothing, you know, it held me back. It kept me in a prison and I didn't need it. And I'm so much more beautiful standing in the real moonlight than I ever was in the shadows of that imaginary castle, that that shitty ass barn, you know? Yeah. And when I realized that what I was feeling when I was weeping like that, you know, wasn't anger and it wasn't sadness and it wasn't grief, but it was gratitude Mm -hmm. that I could finally look up and see that like, God, it just killed me, (laughs) you know, and it was it was actually kind of like a, a really wonderful 
experience to feel gratitude for like the first time in a while a gratitude for this thing that had happened to me that was so destructive right and yet it's so much better now than it was when I was living inside those walls so that was what I I mean what did it what did it do for you oh you're amazing I just have to sit here (laughs) with your words for a minute because (laughs) the idea of standing beautiful in the real moonlight is just an image I'm going to keep with me forever I mean, you, you're mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. And I, I think that's just something we should all aspire to. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I felt the same way when I read this. Mm-hmm. It gave me chill bumps all up and down my arms. Yeah. And and to be able to say when you think about, um, so it, I reframed my mental image of a towering that it now happens at night. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. barns burned down. Now I can see the moon mm-hmm. and the thing is, if you can see the moon, you can reckon, right? If you can see the moon, you can navigate. Right. If you mm-hmm. can see the moon, yeah. you know where you are. And yeah. no one can take that away from you. And mm-hmm. I just think it's beautiful, you know, and I want to burn the barn down around me. I want to mm-hmm. stand in the moonlight. And and I think that you are just such an incredible example of that. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and girl, your voice was strong. You did it. I mean, you you did an amazing job with that. It was fantastic. Mm. Oh, and thanks. God, this is just one chapter. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. God. I feel like, holy crap. Like, we get done with this. I don't know if I want to go outside and dance around and be like, woohoo, big, strong, yes. Or if I want to like curl exactly. up with a blanket and be like, oh, big, strong, yes. <laughs> It's a little bit, it's a little bit of fetal positioning, a little bit of dancing. It's like all of that all in one. Yeah. (laughs) So so for each uh, reading assignment, we have kind of our three part framework of our Mm -hmm. big idea, our strong challenge and our yes. So yeah, Mm -hmm. the big idea is the aha moment, something that inspired us. What's your big idea for this chapter? Uh, You know what? I think it's, it's the idea of integration, Mm -hmm. which I still uh, this this is the word that has been sticking with me since you talked about the Latin root integrare in chapter three, owning our stories, which was part of last week's reading. It says it means to make whole, you know, and I remember noting it, you know, like, like those times where you kind of like notice something and then you move on so fast that you don't consciously entirely process that you've noted it. So it mm-hmm. was that kind of experience. It didn't stick with me during that reading, but everything she described that I do, like the chandeliering, the bouncing, the numbing, the stockpiling, you know. These are all, all like inherently fractious habits. So even though it's an idea that started in chapter three, it's kind of the big idea for me this week because I didn't recognize it until I started reading what she was talking about this week in The Reckoning. And I still don't entirely have my my mind wrapped around that integration emotionally, like mm-hmm. the idea of taking all of these fractured parts and pulling them into the whole that is me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand how to put it in action in my life, but it is the thing that stuck with me. It is the concept that I've been kind of like looking at throughout this is is this this idea of integration that even though I don't understand how to do it just yet, I do kind of emotionally understand it in a way that I don't intellectually understand it, which is usually not the case. Like I emotionally understand that it is the goal, that it is the positive thing that I'm reaching toward, even though I don't entirely understand how to get there. Mm-hmm. No, it's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. So what was it for you this week? So for me, it was on page 52. Um, she said, curiosity reminds us that we're alive. And I love that quote. 
so yeah. much. I think I just want to go tattoo it on something. And it, <laughs> <laughs> but for for me, that strong desire, like the thing that would keep me, no matter what happened in my life, no matter how hard I fell down, no matter you know what mm-hmm. bomb went off or or where I landed, I would eventually crawl my way into a library. Mm-hmm. And and the books and the stories have always been my yeah. go-to. It's always been my inspiration and my healing. And I have been, um, you know, criticized for that a lot and taught to believe it was some kind of character flaw in myself. Oh. But now I realize that it is an expression of curiosity mm-hmm. and wanting to read and wanting to learn and wanting to know other people's stories is not. Oh, yeah. A bad thing like it is curiosity mm-hmm. and I am curious about the world because I am alive in the world and and I think it's a wonderful way to look at that so it just made me feel awe-inspired and happy <laughs> oh good you know what I love that too because curiosity for me is oh god it's one of those concepts that I almost feel like I have a romance with mm-hmm. you know like there are some concepts that entrance you so much that you're always kind of a little in love with them, yeah. you know? And I think yeah. curiosity for me has always been that thing. The Because there's something inherent in the idea of curiosity that is, I don't know, but I want to find out, you right. know? And it is that reaching toward knowledge, toward understanding, getting something that you didn't have before. It's like an intellectual acquisitiveness, you yes. know? And, uh, and I love what that does, you know? And I've always, I've always loved that. So yeah. I think that that is a really great thing. So I'm, I'm, I've got integration and you've got curiosity. And I think they're both part of that same process, yeah, you know, because you too. have to be curious in order to be able to fully integrate. That's right. But it's just, I want to live a life toward understanding. Mm-hmm. And and that yeah. you can't do without curiosity. So understanding that curiosity mm-hmm. is the fuel for that, I think is wonderful. So, oh, I love that. I yeah. think that's brilliant. <laughs> so what about the strong challenge? What did you resist in this reading? What made you want to put the book down? <laughs> uh, well, well, okay. Um, there was a thing that you said to me this week uh, that I have a bias toward action, mm-hmm. that I don't like to sit and rumble with my feelings. I like to take action. I need to do something like, I don't know, perhaps putting a joke on Twitter, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to take action and do stuff. And I was thinking about that. And then on page 57 of the hardback, uh, Dr. Brown, when talking about her family, says that their perspective was doing, not feeling fixes problems. And to her, that was a bad thing. And to me, I'm like, no, I'm a woman of action. Action centers me. It gives me focus. It helps me reckon in the sense of navigating my way through things. I don't, I think, think as much as I I do. Like if something occurs to me, I take action that day. Like I came up with Chipperish in the morning and it was up and on Patreon and I'd started working on my first podcast by that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Like this is something comes to me and I just freaking do it. I mean, so often without even thinking about it. And while I don't think that this is necessarily like a bad thing, I love the things that I've done and the actions that I've taken. It's because I'm so kind of reckless with action that I've accomplished the things that I've accomplished in my life and I love what I've done, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that taking action as a method of escaping my emotions, which is something that I will absolutely cop to I do (laughs) um I think that's my challenge and uh and that's kind of what I'm facing this week because she was saying doing not feeling fixes problems is a bad thing Mm -hmm. and I was like no 
I'm no, that's me. <laughs> like I doing. Yeah, exactly. Like I can sit here and feel whatever, but until I do something about it, it's mm-hmm. nothing, you know? Right. And, uh, and I think that I need to, you know, that's a bit of a challenge for me. So what about you? What did you have? So mine is um, page 63. She said, we can't selectively numb emotions. When we numb the dark, we also numb the light. And oh, yeah. I read that and I said, well, fuck it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, done. Damned. I'm done. I'm going to burn the barn with this book in it. I'm done. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, as always, she's right. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, it was very easy to conceptualize like this emotional crate with all the ugly right. stuff in it. But the truth is. When you pack a crate of emotion, you don't get to pick what you put in there. And so I can pack away pain, but with that, I'm also packing away my capacity to feel joy. Um, And it's a very difficult thing for me to accept that it's true and that I Mm -hmm. have done it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, but the, the light at the end of that is if I open myself up to walking through some of those difficult emotions Mm -hmm. that I can then expand my capacity for the happy emotions. Yeah. So I didn't like it when I first read it, um, but I know it's true. I know it's going to be very difficult for me, but I do believe it's my area to work on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I like that. I think that's really good. So speaking of action, (laughs) what is, what is your yes? What is your action you're going to take this week? You're going to be so proud of me because I actually was able to assign myself homework this week. I don't yes. need to make you do it. I'm so, so proud that. of you. That's awesome. Thank you very much. I'm getting the hang of this, I think. Um, you know, I want to do something specific that counteracts this action versus emotion thing mm-hmm. because I think that that's something I really want to focus on. If, if I think what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to relate my yes, my action to whatever my challenge is, to whatever it is yeah. that I resisted. Because if I resist idea. something, I think it's valuable. So one of the things that Dr. Brown talked about in this reading was writing out permission slips like actual Mm -hmm. like physical on a post-it note permission slips and the idea itself made me go ugh you know (laughs) I actually wrote like ugh in the margins of the page like it was ugh, you know so I'm getting a thing of post-it notes and I'm going to write myself permission slips. I don't know what they're going to be yet. I have no idea what I'm going to give myself permission to do or to feel or whatever. But I'm going to write them out because, you know, I mean, like, honestly, when, I, when I'm resistant to something, it's usually because it's exactly the thing that I need. Right. And so I, when she said permission slips, I was like, oh, my God. God, like that, you know, so that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to write myself some permission slips. I love that. (laughs) And I think you're ahead of me this week because I think I intentionally skimmed over that. And Uh you might need to write me a permission slip while you're at it. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. That's good. (laughs) I love it. Great homework. That's awesome. Thanks. So what are you going to do? Okay. So I'm going to continue journaling and naming the damn feelings. Um, but I am specifically just going to focus on overwhelm and feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I cannot mm-hmm. heal all the things at once. Right. No, so you cannot do that. I'm going to start with that one. Um, and mm-hmm. then on page 70, she actually talked about breathing, mindful mm-hmm. breathing, um, and like an actual process of breathing. And I know I... Um, I don't breathe well. I I, oh, hold, yeah. I hold my breath if I'm mm-hmm. having a difficult moment or my, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm scared or whatever, my tendency is going to be to hold my breath. And yep. I've never learned the deep breathing um, processes. I've never learned mm-hmm. how to do it. And so I really want to tackle that. I want to at least try to learn how to yeah. do that. 
And it's a physical connecting with the body thing. Right. That makes which is me really good. incredibly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try it. And <laughs> I want to keep collaging. Um, I was so resistant to collaging for so long. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, it's really starting to be awesome. Um, no, it is. And see, that's exactly it. The thing that you resist. Collaging was the thing in discovery for writing that I always resisted. Mm-hmm. And every time I did it, it would open up the book for me. Yeah. Like so wonderful. And then even after having that experience a few times... I still on the next book would be like, I don't want a collage. And I didn't do one for this most recent one, but I really, I really probably should. Um, so I think that that's fantastic. I'm really glad that it's, 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 you know, working for you and a Pinterest board. Honestly, it's what I tell my students. I'm like, you don't have yeah. to do anything more than a Pinterest board. You just yep. collect all of these things and put them in a Pinterest board and you can keep that private. It can be just you or just people you invite, but it can be so helpful. And it's yeah. a really great way for anybody out there who's a writer. It's a really great way to do collaging for mm-hmm. a discovery process and writing as well as like a personal process or whatever it's it's a fantastic tool i i love pinterest i support pinterest 100 percent. i think that it's great and it's valuable in ways that i think even the pinterest people don't understand i think so too (laughs) and it's it's very new to me and i resisted it but i am actually going to make a collage about breathing um i like i love combining those two things so thank you for pushing me there because it's been great Oh, good. Well, good. I'm glad it was valuable and not just pushy, you know? <laughs> no, it's been wonderful. <laughs> pushing, right, so, not pushy. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Pushing, right, exactly. All right, so every week we end with a closing quote, and this week it is my turn. Um, we have hit on fear a lot in our discussions with listeners because facing this stuff can be incredibly scary. And once you face the ugly truths in your life, especially the ones that you've been denying, you either have to live dishonestly or you have have to face them and then of course take action which is the part that I'm good at Mm -hmm. but you have to face them first which is the part I'm bad at (laughs) and that can be scary there's a reason why like you know we're talking about your crate and we're talking about my avoidance through action but there's a reason why we avoid this stuff. You know, it's it's not something that you should look at yourself and be like, oh, my God, you know, what kind of coward am I that I haven't faced this? This is really, really difficult stuff. So this week's quote comes from the wonderful Carrie Fisher, who is one of the bravest women yes. um, that uh, that has ever graced this planet, even though it was for far too short a time. Yes. And she said, stay afraid, but do it anyway. What's important is the action. You don't have to wait to be confident. Just do it, and eventually the confidence will follow. Big Strong Yes is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To find out how you can support Big Strong Yes and everything Chipperish Media does, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks, y'all.